Philippians chapter 1. We'll read down through verse 21. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. In view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. We'll stop there. May the Lord add His blessing to the reading of His Word. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we bow before your awful throne. God, we look to you and you are splendid in every aspect. Remarkable. God, you are perfect in all of your ways. There is no defect in you. You are glorious. You are wonderful. You're righteous. You're holy. You're just. You're loving. You're merciful. God, every attribute that we can think of, every uh, character trait, everything that you've revealed about yourself is categorically above and better than anyone else. God, you are so much more than we are or that anything else is. You are the creator and everything else is created. You are categorically different. And God, when we think that you are holy and when we see how sinful we are, when we see something of it, God, we, we want to draw back and not run to you. But God, then you show us Christ and you draw us to yourself with cords of love. You show us your love demonstrated at the cross. And God, you open the way to you through him. And God, call us to come to you with boldness. 
And so, God, because of Christ, because we do have this strong plea, we come before you this morning not only as needy children, though we certainly are that, but God also is is worshiping supplicants. We bow before you, the Almighty. We bow before you, the one who has taken it upon himself to rescue sinners We bow before you, the one who is worthy of all worship and praise and glory. And God, we pray that you would help our small, pitiful hearts and minds to exercise ourselves to that end. God, help us to to forget about whatever might distract us, including ourselves, and to be caught up in who you are and in what you've done. God, we think about the display of your excellence just in what we've seen so far in the book of Philippians, how you have made those people who were in Philippi, people like us, to be saints. And how you've equipped them and how you have kept them. And God, we have every reason to hope because you have not changed that you are keeping us and that you are equipping us and that the same God who worked providentially to take the gospel into lands and Places that it had not been, that you're still at work. And the same God who had conquered the Philippians is the same God who's at work here. And the same God who encouraged their heart through the words on these pages. God, we ask that you would encourage our hearts this morning. Strengthen us, God, and embolden us. God, we do think of so many this morning who are sick and not able to be here. God, we pray that you would give them health and that you would be near to them in their sickness. God, we think again, especially of John Montague as he recovers from this amputation, as he goes through rehab and learns how to deal with losing a leg. For Pat, as she cares for him and walks beside him. God, we especially pray for his soul. God, come near and rescue. God, others here this morning who are whole of body, but God, they don't know you. God, would you rescue them? God, would you open their eyes to see the glory of Christ? God, let them feel contrition in the sight of Him and in the sight of their sin. God, we love You this morning. and We ask God that You'd give us a more fervent love, a more constant love. God, help us to be constrained by love. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Then Wednesday night, we completed that section, that prayer, uh, seeing Paul's motives or ultimate goals in his prayer for the Philippians. And it was a twofold prayer or or goals, um, kind of a, a secondary ultimate goal and a primary ultimate goal, if you can think of it that way. He picks up in the middle of verse 10 and says, In order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ. So this is one of those ultimate goals. It's a future goal, but it is secondary to the primary goal. But the secondary goal was that when Christ returns, you stand before Him having lived a life that is sincere. That is unmixed or unalloyed and blameless, not stumbling about and not causing others to stumble. 
But the ultimate goal or the primary goal is in verse 11, the end of verse 11, to the glory and praise of God. All of this toward that great end, this end that Paul is most concerned about and that you and I should be most concerned about. So this morning we move into this next section of Paul's letter, beginning in verse 12, as he begins to explain his circumstances or the the results of his circumstances. How has this turned out? The people are concerned about him and he's letting them know what's going on with him. Now, before we jump into that immediately, let me ask a question. If you received news this morning that a loved one has been arrested and jailed, how would you respond? Well, depending on the person, you might think he's had it coming for a long time, right? But I'm not talking about that kind of situation. Let's say Pastor John is away this morning, preaching away. Let's say the news came, John has been arrested for preaching. How would you respond to that? A missionary family that we know. How would you think about that? We've talked about how the Philippians were dear to the Apostle Paul. And that's true. But it's also true that Paul was dear to the Philippians. He is their father in the faith and they love him. Remember, they have been partnering with him in the Gospels. They are among those who have contributed to his labor, his work, so that he can go about and preach. So... They have heard that Paul's in prison. Surely they're concerned for him. What's going on, Paul? Are you okay? Also, what is this doing to the cause of the gospel? Because their partnership with them was a partnership in the gospel. He tells us this in verse 5. In view of your participation or your, your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. After conversion, these people almost immediately began to partner with him and to help him. And it continues up until this time, the time of Paul's writing to them. So there's been this ongoing concern, this ongoing partnership. But it's not just a friendship between them, though that certainly would exist. It's more than that. It is a participation or a partnership in the gospel. They love Paul, but part of their love for Paul is that Paul loves God and that Paul is so determined to go and preach the gospel. As he came to them, he's determined to go to others and they love that and that's what they're supporting. So Paul, what's this done to you and what's this done to the gospel? Now, imagine that, that this is the scenario and what you hear is that people are rejoicing. And not just the, uh, the people who've thrown him into prison. They may have rejoiced at first, but now the people who are rejoicing, many of them are people who are rejoicing because they've come to Christ as Paul has been in prison. And Paul himself is rejoicing. And Paul's urging the Philippians to rejoice. In fact, in verse 18, he says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. And he urges them to the same thing in chapter 2 and verse 17. He says, even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. And then, of course, there are other places he says this about rejoicing or having joy in this letter. But let me give you one more so familiar in chapter 4 and verse 4 where he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Strange, Strange thoughts coming from a jail cell. Strange thoughts coming from this missionary writing back to his supporters who are concerned for him as he's in jail. Paul, what do we need to do? I'll tell you what to do. Rejoice. Why? Why? Well, Paul begins writing in verse 12 about his circumstances and what's come out of his circumstances. There are a number of obstacles that he mentions, a number of things that are happening that could be 
seen or viewed as negative. We won't get to all of them this morning. But with each of them, he looks and he doesn't see them as a negative. He sees them as something that God is using for his own glory. So in verse 12, he writes of my circumstances. I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. What are these circumstances? Well, at the time of his writing, I've already mentioned he's a prisoner. He's a prisoner in Rome. It had long been a desire of Paul to go to Rome. Rome was then, of course, the, the capital city of this vast empire. Influential in so many ways. And so he wanted to take the gospel there. To the Romans, in uh, chapter 1 and verse 15, he writes, So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. I want to come there. I'm eager to get there. I want to preach there. In chapter 15 of Romans, as he's closing that letter, he says more about his desire to come. In verse 22 and following, he says, For this reason I have often been prevented from coming to you, but now, with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have had for many years a longing to come to you, a long time longing to come to you, Whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing, and to be helped on my way there by you, when I have first enjoyed your company for a while. But now I'm going to Jerusalem serving the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Remember, by the way, that Philippi is in Macedonia. So they're among those who've made this contribution. Verse 27, yes, they were pleased to do so. And they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. Therefore, when I have finished this and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go on by way of you to Spain. He is intended to come. I've wanted to come for a long time. I want to come and enjoy your company, which would include, I'm sure, preaching the gospel and trying to see a church begun there. And then also to have them support him in his labor as he goes on to Spain. So this is his longing. And Paul now finds himself in Rome. But it's not the way he thought he would go. He didn't book passage on a ship or you know, catch an airplane. Rather, he's gone as a prisoner. Rome has provided the transport and they've taken him there as their prisoner. It's not at all the way that he thought he would come. In Romans 1, verses 10 and 11, he writes there about praying for the Romans. If perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you, for I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established. But when he writes that, surely he, he, hasn't, he doesn't have in mind, I'm coming as a prisoner. I'm coming to, to be in jail for two years. I'm coming to... To await my fate at the hand of Nero. In fact, he says in chapter 15 and verse 29, I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Well, he does come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. But again, not the way that he thought he would come. Acts chapter 21 through 28, and of course, we can't read all that right now, but it gives the account of Paul's coming to Rome. Almost a fourth of the book of Acts is taken up with Paul's arrest and eventual transport to Rome and his waiting for an answer. It begins in chapter 21, verse 17. Paul had gone back to Jerusalem with that contribution that he had taken up, that offering to help the needy saints in Jerusalem. And while there, he was arrested in the temple. By people who hated the gospel. They stirred up an insurrection of sorts. A riot. Trying to kill Paul. And the Roman soldiers who had authority over the area. Rushed out and arrested Paul. Partly at first to keep him from being killed by the Jewish people. And as they're carrying him away. He asked, can I, can I speak to the people? And so they stop and let him. And what does he do? He preaches the gospel. 
and they get mad again. And so they bring him into uh, the, the, the fortress, the area where the jail was, I guess. And they, they're, they're determined to use some enhanced interrogation techniques to find out why the Jews are so mad at him. They're going to scourge him until he tells them, why are they mad at you? Why are they trying to kill you? Then they find out he's a Roman citizen. And they realize they can't do that to him. They're not supposed to do that to him. And so, over the course of time, he appears before the governor Festus, the governor Felix. He appears before Herod. And none of these people make a decision about him. They're afraid to let him loose because of the potential unrest among the Jews. And maybe there's something there. And so no one will make a decision. He's bounced around kind of from place to place. He spends two years in Caesarea where there's a Roman garrison. And finally, he appeals to Caesar. They ship him to Rome. There's a shipwreck. He survives a shipwreck. He arrives in Rome and he spends another two years there. Four years imprisoned. For what? There's no charge. Four years in prison because he preached the gospel and some people in Jerusalem got mad and tried to kill him. Four years. And rather than be bitter, angry, mad, he tells the Philippian church, I'm rejoicing and I urge you, rejoice also. Really strange. As a prisoner in Rome, he had not been thrown into a dungeon. Perhaps because there wasn't a charge. I don't know. But rather than being thrown into some hole, he is placed under a kind of house arrest. Acts 28, 16 says, When we entered Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. No ankle monitors in those days. But he is chained to this soldier. Verse 20 of Acts 28 says, For this reason, therefore, I requested to see you and to speak with you, for I am wearing this chain for the sake of the hope of Israel. 24 hours a day for a period of about two years, Paul is chained to a Roman soldier. It was Roman custom for this guard to change every six hours. So four different men over the course of a day chained to the Apostle Paul with a, about an 18-inch chain. You can imagine the inconvenience besides you know, the possible humiliation of just being wrongly charged and imprisoned. No privacy, no solitude, no moment to yourself. I mean, there's somebody there, right there all the time. While this was a, a great inconvenience, on the other side, he was allowed interaction with people. Acts 28 verses 30 and 31 say he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness, unhindered. So remarkably, he has allowed people to come and to visit him and he's able to preach to them unhindered. And verse 23 says that large numbers came to him. And he was able to speak to them and preach. And some of them believed, some of them didn't. But some of them did. So there's the, the terrible inconvenience, the lack of privacy, all of that. But on the other hand, there is the freedom for people to come. And the freedom to proclaim the gospel to all who did. Two years in prison in Caesarea. Two years in prison in Rome. So four years total. And it's during this waiting that Epaphroditus is sent by the believers in Philippi, to go check on him. What's, what's happening, Paul? How is it with you? How is it with the cause of the gospel? And again, his reply is, I rejoice. In fact, if you look at, at verse 18, I'm reading from the New American Standard, and the translators have broken the sentence up. In this I rejoice, period. Yes, and I will rejoice, comma. And if you look at how that's divided, you know, the first I rejoice goes, comes before that. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed and in this I rejoice. How's it going with the gospel? 
Well, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. I rejoice. The gospel is going all right. The gospel is being proclaimed. Even by people who mean it as to hurt me. It's being proclaimed. I rejoice. How's it going with you, Paul? Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. It's going well with me too. He doesn't mean that everything in prison is great. You wish you were here. You know, He's not saying that. But God is caring for the Apostle Paul in prison so that he can look and say, even here, I rejoice. Primarily because the gospel is going forth. I rejoice. But to answer your question, with me, with the gospel, both, both are reasons to rejoice. Has Paul lost his mind? The only way to really understand this is to understand that Paul does not live for Paul. Chapter 3 and verse 8. We keep referring to it, but it's so important. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things. When he says I've suffered the loss of all things. He doesn't mean I've suffered the loss of all things. And man I'm mad about it. No. I count them but rubbish. So that I may gain Christ. It's no loss. It's not like I've had all this stuff of great value. And it's disappeared now and I'm in prison. No. That was all rubbish for the value of knowing Christ. That's what I want. To know him. And so if that means being in prison. I rejoice. The gospel's going forward. I rejoice. In chapter 1, he says it this way, that last verse that we read this morning, verse 21, for to me, to live is Christ. To die is gain. So Paul, in prison, with all that goes with that, I, I can't imagine that it was sunshine and roses, right? But he rejoices. Obviously, His joy is not tied to his circumstances. His joy is not tied to his possessions. His joy is not tied to his freedom. It's not tied to any earthly pleasure. It's not even tied to his reputation. It's tied to Christ. Because he's being honored, I rejoice. He lives for the glory of God. And that thought overshadows this entire section. So when in verse 12, Paul mentions my circumstances, I believe he's referring to all of that and probably more. All of this that's happened that we know about, all that's happened that you and I don't know about. All of this that's happened. It's turned out for good. In fact, in verse 12, as he continues... He speaks of the greater progress of the gospel. My circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Paul rejoices and he wants the Philippians to be relieved of their concern while joining him in rejoicing. Why? Because they are interested in the advancement of the gospel, as Paul is. And so he says, this has turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Paul had his plan for going to Philippi. Uh, Pardon me, for going to Rome. I'm coming to Rome. I want to come to Rome. I'm going to stop on my way to Spain. I want to come and be a blessing to you. I want to come and enjoy your company. He had his plan. God had a different plan. Paul is saying, in essence, God's plan was better. My circumstances, the way I got to Rome, my time in Rome, is turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. It's better than my plan would have been. Arrested, imprisoned, would you start thinking about how much better this is going to be? For the greater progress, the word greater could also be translated rather. And that might be the better translation here. So that the idea is this. I know you would think that my being arrested is a bad thing. That it would hinder the gospel. But rather, it's been good. The gospel has progressed. So not what you expect, but rather this. 
progress. The gospel is progressing. The word progress doesn't simply mean move forward. I mean, we could use it that way, but that's not how he's using it. The word that he uses is one that uh, was used at one time to, to um, convey the idea of, of making headway in spite of blows. It was used of um, shipping, a ship moving forward against the wind and waves and maybe a storm. But it is progressing against that. It was used of a blacksmith who takes a piece of metal and he heats it and he beats on it and shapes it. And there's progress made in this metal. It becomes shaped into what the blacksmith is making it into. But the way that it is shaped is through blows. It was used of army engineers who went and cleared the way for the advancing army. So here are these obstacles in the way and they're coming through and removing them so that the army is not hindered as it pushes forward. Paul says, my circumstances have turned out for the progress of the gospel. There may be obstacles. My circumstances may have appeared to be an obstacle. There may be blows. But the gospel still is progressing. Obstacles are being removed. And none of those things are stopping the spread of the gospel. It's not being thwarted by anything that's being thrown at it. In spite of what's coming, the gospel is progressing. So my circumstances, yes, they have turned out rather for the progress of the gospel, not for the hindering of the gospel. Opposition to the gospel is nothing new. We, we've seen so much of the adversity that Paul faced during his life as a believer. We saw a lot of it in 2 Corinthians as we were going through that book. And all of it was adversity because of the gospel. And yet, the gospel keeps moving. And it has throughout the ages. Now, as Paul speaks of this gospel progress, he also tells us, the direction in which the gospel is progressing. And it's twofold. One is directly. The gospel is progressing through Paul. He says this in verse 13. So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. Well, what is it that's become well known? My imprisonment in the cause of Christ. What does he mean by that? I don't see how it can mean anything less than this. The fact that I am imprisoned for the sake of the gospel has become well known. As people are coming into contact with Paul, as the, uh, the word is getting out, even beyond him, the word is going out, the reputation is going out. Paul's not there because he's a criminal. He's not some violent offender. He, he's not there because he's a thief. Paul's there because he preaches the gospel. That's it. It's because of the cause of Christ. That's why he's imprisoned. And that is getting out. And more and more people are coming to know it. In fact, it has become well known, he says, to the whole Praetorian guard. The word Praetorian is sometimes translated palace. But it also had this technical meaning of the palace guard or the praetorian guard, the people who guarded the palace. These were chosen soldiers who, you, you, I mean, they were kind of an elite force within the army. They received double pay. They had a lot of power so that eventually the Caesars kind of had to cater to them because they wielded so much power. But these are the guys who are being chained to Paul. It's these soldiers. And so as they are being chained to him, one after the next, 24 hours a day for about two years, something's happening. I mean, these guys are, not only, not only is Paul chained to them, but they're chained to Paul. And what do you think he talks about? Why are you here? I'm glad you asked. And he tells them. Or, can you imagine? I mean, it's 24 hours a day. Paul sits down or kneels down to pray. And they hear him. And again, he's not bitter. 
It's not a bunch of invectives. But he's pleading with God for the Philippian church and the Corinthian church and the church at Thessalonica. And he's crying out to God on behalf of these people, crying out that the gospel would continue to move forward, that they would prosper. They hear all this. Maybe they hear him pray for Caesar. For Rome. For them. And they can't leave. Have you ever tried to talk to someone about Christ and they can't get out of the room fast enough? These guys can't go anywhere. And it's not like, okay, I saw you for three minutes one day and you talked this way or you acted this way. But it's day after day, moment after moment for two years. This is Paul's reputation. They look and they see and they hear. And over time, they are impacted by what they see and hear. And it becomes known throughout the entire Praetorian Guard. This man is here for the cause of Christ. It's not just the Praetorian Guard. But he also says in verse 13, and to everyone else. I don't know that this means every single individual, but I do think it means this. It is so well known throughout Rome. It is generally known. If you've heard of Paul, you understand Paul is in prison for the cause of Christ. The word has gotten out. It's on the street. People know that guy is there because of Christ. And so Paul rejoices. How how could Paul have planned this? If Paul had shown up and gone to the synagogue in Rome and met with the believers there and eventually got kicked out like he did in every other place, would the gospel have advanced as quickly and as thoroughly in Rome as it did by Paul coming to Rome as a prisoner? So the gospel has progressed in a direct way through Paul to the Praetorian Guard everyone else. But Paul also speaks of an indirect way that the gospel is progressing because of his chains, because of his imprisonment. He says this in verse 14. And that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. The church, again, knows of his imprisonment. It's, It's no mystery. They know. They know why he's there. And you would think that when he's arrested, perhaps there's a bit of fear. When he's kept in Caesarea, perhaps. When he's transferred to Rome again, perhaps. What will Nero do? Is this going to stir Nero up to to really clamp down on the Christians? What will happen? And with each of those kind of instances, you can think of how people might hesitate and, and fear and be made... Afraid to speak. Or maybe there were even people who they just never really thought about speaking. But whichever situation you think of, they now look at Paul, the prisoner for four years in the cause of Christ. And he hasn't shut up. He won't quit. He keeps talking. And it's having an effect that no one would have imagined. The Praetorian guards hearing it. And by the way, he closes his letter to the Philippians with the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. It's not just that they've heard and are convinced that he's there for the cause of Christ. There are those in Caesar's household who've come to believe. They are now saints. And so there are people looking on and they're seeing all this and they are made bold to speak in a way that they had not spoken before. And so not only through the mouth of Paul is the gospel going out in his imprisonment, but others are being encouraged to speak when they wouldn't have spoken because of Paul's imprisonment. And in both, the gospel's going out. So he can say, my circumstances have turned out rather for the progress of the gospel. And that's why he says, I rejoice. And that's why he urges them to rejoice. Well, let's think about some application here. 
And as we move toward application, I'm going to just mention how good and how kind it is for God to give us the book of Philippians and others like it. We're given commands. I mean, in Philippians 4, there's the command, rejoice. And that really should be enough, shouldn't it? God said rejoice. We're given in the pages of Scripture doctrinal truth. Here is teaching that you need to know. Here's instruction. But then God also gives us examples. And the very thing that He commands us in Philippians 4, the very thing really that Paul prays for in his prayer for the Philippians, that they would, that their lives would work toward the glory and praise of God. He's exemplifying it himself. Paul, day by day, in Caesarea, Paul in Rome, chained to this guard, he has to distinguish between the things that differ. Approve what's excellent. What do I say? What don't I say? How do I respond to that? He's a man. And so we have this living out of the very thing that he's praying for the Philippians. Living out of the rejoicing that we're commanded in chapter 4. By example. Well, the first thing I'd like to point out by way of application is this. That Paul obviously had a strong grasp Or we might say that he was in the grip of the sovereignty of God. It's one thing to talk about sovereignty. It's another to live as though God is sovereign. How can Paul view all that's happened to him and not be mad, not be bitter, not be, you know, standoffish, you know, kind of have the attitude of, I I keep getting kicked, I'm tired of getting kicked, I'm not going to go get kicked again, so I'm just going to kind of chill out a little bit and not say so much. But he never does that. Why? Because he does view everything that's happened to him through the lens of the fact that God is sovereign and that He works all things providentially according to His wise and good commands. He sees this and he believes this. We read the, the letters of Paul. We see the adversity he faces. And there is no sense that I find of poor me. Oh, it's awful. Let me tell you what they did to me. There's none of that. Because Paul is not self-centered. He is God-centered. We talk a lot about being God-centered. but We see it lived out in Paul. Paul, in verse 12, when he says, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances. Right there, he stops talking about himself. That's everything he says about himself. My circumstances. The rest of it really is, here's what God's doing. He is not self-centered. This is the context in which God is at work. So let me mention my circumstances. But he doesn't belabor it. It's just, that's what it is, my circumstances. Now let me tell you what God's doing. These are the events, the situations used by God for the main thing, the glory of God. And because Paul is concerned with God's glory, Paul is concerned with God's gospel. The gospel is the place where the glory of God is most fully displayed. It's through the gospel that God's eternal purposes are being accomplished. It's in the rescue of sinners that God's glory is really highlighted. It's it's the mediatorial work of Christ. It's all of that. And so the cause of the gospel is the cause of God. And as Paul is concerned for the glory of God, he must be concerned for the gospel. Perhaps this is a good test for us. Are you concerned for the cause of Christ in the world? Concerned for the gospel? If not, then how God-centered can we really be? If those things go together, then have we really been gripped by the sovereignty of God as Paul has been? Well, Paul has been. And so he evaluates all that happens to him by that glory, the glory of God in the gospel. He doesn't look at it through the lens of his own life. This is happening to me. He doesn't look at it through the lens of his conveniences or his likes and preferences. 
But it is, this is what God has done for the gospel. And so I rejoice. It's because Paul holds this view that he can say in Acts chapter 20 and verse 24. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself. So that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. That's what I'm doing. That's what I'm about. Testifying solemnly to the grace of God in the gospel. And so because that's what I'm about, I don't hold my life as dear. I'm not judging what happens to me by that standard, but by the standard of the gospel. Believer, are you still consumed with self? Are you still viewing everything that happens to you through the lens of poor me? I'm not saying it's not a fight to get away from that or that it's a daily battle, perhaps. But if you're not even fighting, how miserable in existence to live a life consumed with self and me getting mine. That's a very worldly way of looking at things, isn't it? Paul says, no, that's, that's all rubbish. I've suffered the loss of that glad to be done with it because I want to know Him. When we find ourselves lacking joy, (laughs) we are so tempted to say it's because of this circumstance or because of that person this happened and I feel terrible about it not like I feel terrible for you I feel terrible for me right but if we understand what we're looking at here I think we have to come to this conclusion that the measure of your joy is not how you react or what you feel when everything's going your way, like you want it to happen, your preferences. The measure of your joy is how you respond when things are not going as you planned. And you fight for joy anyway, because God is sovereign. And again, Paul is so helpful here. It's not as if, you know, he had a hangnail once and he felt, you know, he was, it was terrible and he fought for joy. We look at Paul and who can look at Paul and say, I've suffered more than Paul right here. Paul has suffered so much and yet suffering so much. Paul says rejoice. Yeah, second thing here. God works in ways that we would never anticipate. Who would plan to bring the gospel to Rome as a prisoner? I mean, if you had to to strategize, like I'm, I'm going to plant a church in this city and I'm trying to come up with you know, the, the right approach, who would say the way to do that actually is to get arrested? <laughs> Let me preach and make someone mad and get arrested and that's how we're starting a church there. Who would do that? Who would think that that was the best way to reach the Roman palace or the best way to reach the Roman army and into the Roman population? And yet God did. One man said, and this isn't a direct quote, but paraphrasing, he said something along the lines of God made Paul wear a chain so that the tongues of Christians would be loosed. (laughs) How backwards that seems. And yet God did that. Paul's imprisonment, his chains, emboldens others. Their tongues are loosed. Is it any wonder that Paul could look at his circumstances at all that had happened to him and say, it's good. It's worked out rather for the progress of the gospel. But let me ask you something again. Does the providence of God, his his working in ways that we would not anticipate, is that only something that happens with apostles? Is that only something that's applicable to first century Christianity? 
Or is God still a God who works by providence? Is that still the way he governs and rules his world? And if it is the way he still governs and rules his world, then why do you act as though those rules don't apply to you? Paul was chained to a soldier. You may feel chained to a job. If only I had a different job. Then I'd really be bold. Then things would be so much better. You may feel chained to a classroom if you're a student. Or you may feel chained to a spouse or a child or a parent and think... If this situation that exists in my house would resolve itself, life would be so much better. And it may be more pleasant in some ways. But the question is, are you in a life that God has designed or are you not? Does God rule providentially or do you exist outside of his governance in some odd parallel universe that no one else exists in? Is Romans 8.28 still true? If it is, if you believe in God and His providence, then you must view what you consider to be your chains as His placing you where He wants you for the furtherance of His gospel and His glory. Third, the gospel is unstoppable because it is God's gospel. Why is Paul thrown into prison for preaching the gospel? (laughs) There were people who hated what he had to say. They hated it so much, they followed him from town to town and stirred up trouble. They followed him to Jerusalem and stir up trouble. He's arrested, and it's all because he preaches the gospel. They wanted to silence him. They wanted to shut him up. Surely their reasoning is something along the lines of, if we can shut him up, we can shut up this gospel. And yet, as they surely must have rejoiced as he's carried away into prison and seems to disappear for a while, Paul is not silenced. They can't shut him up. And even if... He had died that day and they shut him up. They couldn't have shut up God's gospel. But as they they see him go away, God's providence works so that as Paul is imprisoned, yet by his chains, many who were in bondage were set free. People hear the gospel who may not have, humanly speaking, heard the gospel if they hadn't worked to get him arrested. Rather than stopping him, they gave him a platform to trumpet the gospel with the Praetorian guard saying, He is real. He's here for the cause of Christ. They meant it for evil. God meant it for good. As you read the news... As you watch a culture in decline, as you think about all the different things that exist, this are in opposition to God and His gospel. Be encouraged. None of that can stop the gospel. None of that can thwart God. God is not concerned about any of that. He who sits in the heavens laughs. It's not as if He's anxiously looking and wondering, what's going to happen down there? How's it all going to turn out? He already knows. And while we might not know all the ins and outs and the ups and downs that may come, we can be assured of this. God is on His throne and He reigns. And He wins. And believers will rule and reign with Him. What a remarkable God. Paul would later write to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.9, That this gospel for which I suffer hardship, even to imprisonment as a criminal, 
but the word of God is not imprisoned. And it can't be. One more thing. I've already kind of mentioned that Paul models this for us. He he prays for the Philippians, live to the glory of God. You need these things to be able to live to the glory of God. Let me live it before you so that you can see it. And with with that kind of thought in mind, that Paul models for us what it means to, to live for Christ. As you look at him, what was it about Paul that God used to win so many of the Praetorian Guard and to embolden most of the brethren, not a few of them, the majority of them, most of the brethren. What was it? Was it Paul's ability to communicate? I mean, is he a polished speaker and just has a silver tongue and people hear him and they're one to his cause? Well, it's not that. Is it his winsomeness, as people talk about sometimes? I don't, I don't even think it's that. I mean, they do view, they hear his message, They do view his life. They see the integrity of his life. They see his character. Here's a man full of of grace. But it's all of that in the context that it exists in. Follow me. If Paul preached the same gospel and lived a life of joy as he traveled freely from town to town, would the Praetorian Guard ever have stopped and said, that man is here for the cause of Christ. But it's because in jail, he continues to do those things. It's in the context of that, living a life filled with the Spirit of God, imprisoned, continuing to preach the gospel of God, imprisoned, responding with grace and joy, in prison. The people see that. And that's remarkable to them. It's easy to put on a smile when everything's great. When people are giving you everything you want. But what about when it's all falling apart in the view of the world? What about when nothing seems to be working? Surely any worldling looking at the situation of Paul would think, boy, if that's, the me- if that's the plan for success, Paul, it just doesn't seem to be working for you. You might want to try something different. And yet it's right there that he continues to trust God and to rejoice. And it's there that God uses him for the progress of the gospel. I'm sure many of you have heard it before, but uh, kind of along these lines is the story of George Mueller, the man who was involved in the lives of so many orphans in England, in Bristol. And he had the care of all these children, and Mueller had determined not to ever let people know what their needs were or to ask for anything. The only person he would ask was God. And so there are accounts of them sitting down to eat, and there's no food. And praying and asking God to bless the food. And, you know, someone show up and say, we've, I'm probably getting this a little bit wrong because it's been a little while, but, you know, things like this. Like, we made too much bread today. Could y'all use some bread? And so there's the bread that they just ask God to, you know, bless, that they thank God for. And there's all these accounts of things like that. But Bueller talked about how, with the cares of all these children on him, as well as missionaries that he supported, It would be very easy to be weighed down with that care and walk around with this look on his face that made the people around him think, he serves a harsh God. He carries a heavy load. And so Mueller said he thought his most important job was to get up each morning and get his heart happy in the Lord. He didn't want anyone to look at him and think, what a miserable life he's living, trusting God. He wanted everyone to know that God is good. And he takes care of his children. And so, in what surely many times would have been hard circumstances, he rejoiced in the Lord. Well, may God embolden us in the gospel. 
And may God give us grace to pursue him so that we rejoice in the lives he's given us. I'm going to read Romans 16, verses 25 through 27, that doxology. Then we'll be seated for just a moment of silence before we're dismissed. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to obedience of faith. To the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen.